You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series, A Tour Through John, now looking at Lesson 32. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. And here's today's teaching. A Tour Through John, Lesson 32. We left off in the middle of John chapter 19, the chapter on the crucifixion of Christ. We'll continue our reading in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. So they cast lots for his clothing. There are five pieces. The first four are easily um, dividable, but not the prize piece, the, uh, the tunic itself. And for that, they gamble. By custom, normally the clothing of the executed became the property of the executioner. And gambling was very popular among the soldiers. In fact, there's uh, some archaeological evidence of gambling among soldiers stationed in Jerusalem in the first century uh, at a very close distance to where Jesus was crucified. I've seen it. The gambling fulfills the scripture, and that's referring to Psalm 22, one of those messianic psalms, really a psalm of faith that starts out as a psalm of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as you get near the end, like verse 22, the psalmist is confident that he will be restored and once again sing God's praises among his brothers. Just a comment on clothing in the ancient time. Garments included tunic and cloak. Now, there could be other garments as well, but those are the two major ones. The tunic is an undergarment, not underwear, uh, but it would be worn indoors or while working. And the cloak provided warmth and protection. If things got too hot, then the cloak could come off. Like the garment of the high priest in Exodus 28, the robe was a seamless whole. So John may be indicating that Jesus is our high priest, and uh, particularly in connection with the priestly prayer. It's actually called the high priestly prayer of chapter 17. This makes sense. Verse 25. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, Standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Well, the women are standing nearby. The men, on the other hand, uh, with very few exceptions, fail to support Jesus in his time of need. They flee not just emotionally, as men tend to do, but also uh, geographically. 
Many women supported Jesus both morally and materially. Luke especially brings this out in Luke chapter 8, verse 3. But it's the moral support, the presence, that is emphasized here. Jesus must have realized that his brothers were unable to take care of their mother. Now, exactly why is a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, why would you? I mean, if you were going to die, you'd think the your next oldest brother, in this case it would be James or Jacob, same name, uh, would be the one. And if not him, then the third brother. Jesus, after all, had four brothers. One writer suggests that um, Mary, because she believed in Jesus or was a disciple of Jesus, had somehow become alienated to the brothers. Well, that makes sense to me. Although by Acts 1, we see that his siblings are now included among the believers, his brothers and his sisters. So it's it's a little confusing. But he entrusts his mother to this special disciple, uh, who is the author of John. And tradition records that later Mary was taken into his home and that they lived together in Ephesus, which is in the Greek uh, Greek Turkey, let's say the western side of Turkey, where John's ministry shifted in later years. That is a tradition, though. Um, I don't know how much stock we should put in it. Uh, interestingly, a crucified person still had the legal power to declare a will. In this case, this is what Jesus is doing. He's planning for his mother's waning years. I don't think he had uh, much property to deed He wasn't leaving a lot behind, if anything. But what he said, even on the cross, was legally binding. And so this is officially arranged, uh, and he really wants his mother to be taken care of. And at this point, Mary is about 50 years old. Uh, She's not young. Let's continue in verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus thirsts, and he receives a drink. Now, this is not the initial offer of a drink, actually a mild analgesic, and that's recorded in Matthew 27. It was unusual for a a member of an execution squad to give a prisoner a drink, even to permit it. But apparently, this soldier was touched. Um, He shows a kindness to Jesus, and we see this in all four Gospels that sometimes Uh, Soldiers, pagan soldiers, um, are better behaved, have better character, or uh, more easily have faith than God's own people. The the drink um, was a watered-down vinegar or cheap wine, uh, oxos, it says in the Greek New Testament. This uh, cheap alcoholic beverage was popular among soldiers. To put a drink um, on the end of a branch of hyssop would be... uh, Let's just say that's problematic. The sponge would be way too heavy uh, to be supported. And so some Greek manuscripts altered the word hyssopos to the word hyssos, which is javelin. Well, that makes good sense, too. But on the other hand, if the stem of the hyssop plant is intended, 
as opposed to a sprig, which is light, uh, the weight could probably have been supported. Well, the giving of the drink fulfills Psalm 69, but also look at Psalm 22 again. And then if we compare this to other uh, passages in John's gospel about drink, uh, we find um, a very interesting theme from Jesus asking the Samaritan woman to give him a drink to those who believe in Jesus, uh, water, uh, like streams of living water will flow out from them. This is uh, quite a theme in the Gospel of John. What long last, his time has come, and he cries out, it is finished, to Telestai. It is finished. Salvation's work is done. Now, it will be complemented by the resurrection and the ascension and the accession and the outpouring of the Spirit. Perhaps I should just clarify. We, our sins are forgiven because of Jesus' death, but we're born to new life because of his resurrection, Romans 6, 4. So there's still to come the resurrection and the ascension. He goes back to heaven. The accession, he accedes to the throne and sits down. And then the outpouring of the Spirit. So these are all key elements. Matthew 27 and Mark 15 record a final cry of Jesus. He cried out, but, but not the words. Here we have um, the words. It's kind of like with Paul's conversion, in, which is recorded um, three times in the book of Acts. And once they hear a sound, but they don't know the words. Another time they hear the words, but you know it kind of goes like that. Luke also reports these words, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, Jesus Christ has been murdered by the leaders of the Jews, men who should have welcomed him in, but who have betrayed their own nation. The Lord gives up his spirit. And of course, there's even more symbolism here in John. He surrenders his spirit to the Father, and that makes it possible to give his spirit to his followers. And there's intimation of that in chapter 20. And of course, in the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, we all receive this, that spirit of Christ. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Jesus is dead. His body hangs on the cross, as do those of the men crucified with him. Now, in accordance with the teaching of the Torah, the bodies must be removed before sunset. Well, the Sabbath is about to begin, so the bodies must be removed quickly. This the Romans accomplished by breaking legs. 
that would hasten the death since the crucified man would not be able to use his legs to help himself to stand up or to catch a breath. Well, the thieves are still alive, those men on either side of Jesus. And so the soldiers break their legs. Typically, Roman soldiers used an iron mallet for this purpose. Um, Skeletal remains of a crucified man found in the area north of Jerusalem show one leg um, was fractured and the other smashed to pieces. So this would be evidence for this kind of a practice. Well, when they come to Jesus, he's already dead. Just to make sure, the soldier drives a lance straight into Jesus's heart. And this fulfills Zechariah 12.10. Let me read that passage. You know, Zechariah has so much messianic scripture in it. And I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that when they look on the one whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great. And I'm cutting off the passage right there. But these are Um, just some of the many passages and themes that are fulfilled in the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. So thus the scriptures are fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And that um, is based on Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12, Psalm 34, 20, suggesting that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Well, the result of the piercing is a flow of blood and water. Water and blood are significant. 1 John 5, 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. See, in the ancient world, many writers describe humans as being composed of water and blood. I think the point is that Jesus is human. This is a big theme, not just in the Gospel of John, but especially in the letters of 1 and 2 John. The ancient people easily believed that Jesus was God, but not so easily that he was human, that he was fully human. Now, the view that he was uh, divine and so only appeared to be human, that's called docetism. Uh, See the note for the spelling of this um, uh, teaching, which is the teaching that was being refuted by the author of 1 John and 2 John. Okay, so we come now to the last part, the very last paragraph of uh, chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now, there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 
And so this chapter ends with the burial of Jesus. Well, normally, in the case of crucifixion, the Romans would have just let the vultures dispose of the body. I mean, they wouldn't have stopped birds from landing on the crucified man on the cross. There was no proper burial for a crucified man unless the authorities extended kindness to the family. Usually they granted the body, though not necessarily in a case of sedition, you know, if it's a crime against the state. But this is an exceptional situation. Joseph of Arimathea makes a request of Pilate. He requests the body of Jesus. And we read that he had been a secret disciple. That, uh, that I think we need to come back to in a few moments. We need to uh, talk about that. Is there even anything, any such thing as a secret disciple? Well, in light of uh, 1242-43, there's nothing commendable about being a secret disciple. You know, being afraid of the Jews, being afraid of uh, being pushed out. But now Joseph is coming out into the open. He's taking a risk. In fact, you could reason that he's taking a very big risk. So this is an honorable thing he's doing in asking for the body of Christ. Pilate agrees. He says yes to the request. This makes sense, and it fits with the other details in our account. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. In a small way, he was doing something good for Jesus. Sadly, though, he caught a glimpse of Christ's greatness, but lacked the backbone to ensure that justice was done. Joseph must have known that Jesus' brothers would not be coming forward to claim the body. I mean, it would be quite odd if Jesus has family, and yet this is an outsider, a non-family member, saying, I'll take care of it. Or perhaps they made an arrangement with them. We could well believe that Joseph had already approached James um, as the eldest male of the family and, and made this arrangement. The body needed to be buried anyway, and it needed to be buried soon. Yet Bethlehem, if there was a family plot there, that was too far away. Um, that would have taken a couple of hours to get to. And Galilee was impossibly far, especially with the Sabbath about to begin. I mean, that would take at least a week to walk to. So Joseph action, Joseph's action is told in all four Gospels. Like Nicodemus, he is a dissenting voice within the Sanhedrin. So he's part of that august body. Not all of them were against Christ. Well, what do they bring? Costly myrrh and aloes. Myrrh is typically used uh, to help with the preservation and maybe even the smell of a cadaver, uh, which throws some light on the Gospel of Luke when the guests come from the east and they bring gifts of, of frankincense and gold and myrrh. The myrrh is a gift for uh, for one's death. And so even... When he was an infant, his death was anticipated. Myrrh and aloes we also find in Psalm 45, which is the wedding psalm. And you'll see it mentioned in Proverbs 7 and Song of Songs 4. But it's the quantity, not just the qualities of, of, of these uh, myrrhs and aloes. The quantity is enormous. It's enough for the burial of a king. Look at 2 Chronicles 16, 14. Anyway, Jesus, uh, John is emphasizing here and elsewhere that Jesus is king. Jesus is a king. He deserves such a send-off, such a burial. So Nicodemus joins, and again, these spices would have offset putrefaction and covered over at least part of the odor of decomposition. 
but it's an expensive mixture, especially the weight of it. A hundred pounds, think of it this way. If Jesus was average size male, he would have weighed no more than 150 pounds, maybe 180 if he was rippling muscle. And we're talking 70, maybe 80 kilograms. And yet the, the spices, um, 100 pounds, that's 45 kilograms. So cadaver and spices together would have come to 250 to 280 pounds, 115 to 130 kgs. Very difficult uh, for two men to shift. Very difficult. They wrap, um, Joseph and Nicodemus wrap the body in a linen cloth, and they lay it in a nearby garden tomb, which according to Matthew is Joseph's own family, family burial site. Well, this is a very different end than what normally would have happened with executed criminals. They would have been buried well away from the city, according to Josephus. In later times, there were two special burial places provided. One was for those who died of stoning and burning, another for those who were beheaded and, um, and those who were strangled. Now, Jesus is worth um, the most dignified burial possible, a royal, a truly regal burial. And Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph make sure he gets that. So these two cautious believers come into the light. Nicodemus, who we met in chapter 3, and then in chapter 7 as he stands up for Jesus, and finally the third time, and, and the last time ever, we see him here in John 19. He's being quite bold. He's going on the record. And Joseph of Arimathea, they find strength in each other. They have a lot in common. They're educated, they're respected, they're influential, they're leaders. But Joseph, it says, has been a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. I think this is an implicit call for all true believers to take a stand. When Nicodemus and Joseph came out, they were exposing themselves to criticism and worse. Now, as a young Christian, I would have really struggled over this if I had thought about it more. If someone asked me, is there such thing as a secret disciple? I would have said no. In fact, I could remember reaching out to someone. I don't remember what this um, a woman's church background was, but it was in my very early years as a Christian. And she said, well, you know, Joseph Arimathea was a secret disciple. I remember I responded with no such thing as a secret disciple. That's a non-disciple. That's a non-Christian. Well, okay, all right. If we're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of us. But that's not the way this text reads. This says he was a disciple, though secretly, because of his very delicate situation. Maybe there's more information we don't have access to that justifies his stance. Maybe there's something else. Um, we want to know. We want to say, well, someone holds back, then he's not a true member of the body of Christ. Well, there may be some reasons. And this is not justification for me to be uh, secretive or cowardly, though, though it may be an example for me to be careful and to think and not rush. But I I notice as a young Christian, I had a very different take on this to what I had later. You know, after 20, 30, 40 years, you say, oh, well, it does say he's a disciple. I mean, he's, he's on the right track. He's not being condemned here. He's being commended. Well, 
I guess we could ask ourselves a couple questions. Is there any way in which I've been living as a secret disciple where I need to come out into the open and be more public with my faith? Let's think about that as we pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing chapter. Thank you for the example of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Let us think about them. And as we continue to ponder the significance of Jesus' death and burial, and next chapter, as we get to his resurrection, thank you for your power. Thank you for the meaning of, of Jesus' death. He was the king. He's now been fully rejected by his own people who should have enthroned him and adored him. But let us not fall into the same kinds of mistakes that those other leaders fell into, uh, be just being so confident that we're right. Give us humility. Give us a great day. We pray it in Christ. Amen. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on a tour through John. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.